We are so glad you joined us for this week's message from Radiance in Macomb, Mississippi. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in your relationship with Jesus. Be blessed as you listen to this week's message. We've been chase, uh, chasing Jesus up the hill, and today would be the day that we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. And in celebrating Palm Sunday, we remember uh, His triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem, uh, knowing what awaited Him. And uh, we looked at that several weeks ago. And uh, as we've traced these steps, Jesus made um, a statement multiple times that we've been tracing to His disciples, warning them of what awaited Him. Uh, and we find that recorded in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And He just said uh, to them that we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock, spit, flog, and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. And so we come into a, a point of transition as we looked last week um, at, a, at some certain aspects. And this week we look at uh, the cross, but not from a perspective of the, the actual crucifixion, but the symbolism that takes place um, in, in what's going on uh, while Jesus is on the cross. And uh, as He made... That entry, uh, I saw a documentary this past week asking the question, did Jesus knew what awaited Him when He made that entry into Jerusalem? Because all the people were cheering and all the people were excited and uh, they were looking at Jesus as this political Messiah. You know, kind of the same thing that we do when the president that we voted for gets elected. Oh, we win, we win. And Jesus knew full well because of what's recorded in Mark chapter 10 that it was not going to end with Him sitting on a throne on this earth. It was going to end with Him dying in order to take a throne in eternity. But people couldn't grasp that. So the same people that were yelling and screaming and hollering, Hosanna, they were so excited about His entry are now sit sitting at uh, outside Pilate's steps yelling, Crucify. And when things don't go our way sometimes... It's exactly what we do. And we praise God in the joy of life and we turn around and spit on God when things don't go the way we think they should go. And so uh, as we jump in today, we're going to take a little bit of a different journey because there were four statements. This is kind of the buffer between the final two statements. And I want to look at some symbolism that takes place on the cross. And um, we celebrated a, a, a Passover meal um, this this weekend and uh, a little bit of teaching from that showed us some of the things that Jesus did to, um, to to make connections. We have this idea that God is just so unobtainable and He doesn't show us anything and we don't we don't have a way to grasp what God's doing around us. But there's clear connections between not just this week but the entirety of the life of Jesus and uh, and, and what we see today and. Uh, and so as we, as we look today, we're going to jump into John chapter 10, uh, look outside of the Synoptic Gospels into the, the one that's a little bit different. But Jesus is talking um, to a group of people, and, and He says this, He says, For this reason the Father loves me. Now most of us would love that statement, we make that statement, but Jesus goes on, He says, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knew even then, and this is well before the crucifixion accounts, that what His purpose was, was to go and to lay down His life. And He's constantly telling people, and so when we get to the point that we're in, people are... People are just insist that this is taking place. The disciples are frustrated. And we talked a little bit last week. Peter's even going to the extreme of saying, no way, you're not doing that. I won't allow it to happen. And it was just simply because of the love and adoration that Peter had for Jesus, but it was just misguided. And the principle was lost that Jesus was teaching. He knew what awaited him on this day that we celebrate Palm Sunday. He knew while they were celebrating that he was riding to his ultimate death on a cross. He knew exactly what awaited him. And we come to a, a point and we looked a little bit about the mocking last week, and we see the soldiers mocking and beating and, and spitting, and we see that take place all the way up as they parade Jesus up the hill carrying the cross beam. I think most of the movies that we see, we see this big cross on his shoulders, and that's not how that would take place. He would carry the cross beam on his back, which weighed in excess of 85 to 90 pounds by itself. Uh, that beam would be where his wrists would be nailed. And um, th- the good thing that came out of the documentary that I watched, if you've got Netflix, there's a documentary about it, uh, about the, uh, the, the history of this. There is actually a crucified, um, it's, it's what's left of an arm with a spike still drove through it from the same Roman time period as Jesus. So people argue that, well, they didn't crucify people that way. Well, there's physical verifiable, substantial evidence that yes, they absolutely did. So Jesus was not the only one that was crucified this way. And so as they get to this point where they've paraded Him and they've mocked Him, it's recorded in Matthew 27, it says the soldiers do this right before they carry Him up the hill. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before Him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the reed. They struck him. When it says struck him on the head, they did this multiple times with the crown of thorns on his head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And so this is the final instance of mocking before he's hung on the cross. And there's actually a ton of symbolism, both in the Old Testament and what's going to come up in Revelation. But I just want to look at three things from this passage today. Jesus has already made it very clear that this is what's going to take place, that I'm going to lay my life down, that it's going to be horrific, it's going to be horrible, it's going to be horrendous, but there's a reason that it's got to take place. So I want to show you three things out of this passage, and it starts with the first one being the scarlet robe. Now, it says purple in some translations or scarlet. The same Greek word is used for any color or any shade like that. So like you and I, when I say red, I may mean something different than what you mean when you say red. Because there is a whole color palette of red from dark, deep crimson all the way over to, I mean, you know, try to go paint a house. And we're going to paint it red. Well, which one? (laughs) 
There's like 4,000 shades of red. So they use a very general term. The word could mean anything from scarlet to purple. So there's no inconsistency in what's said between the Gospels. But placing this robe on Jesus, what they did was they placed the, the robe over his shoulders in much the same way that the cross would, in just a few short moments after this, would be placed on his shoulders. And the scarlet robe in the Old Testament is a symbol of kingship or authority of a ruler. Um, it, it's not only symbolic of that, but the prophet Isaiah actually says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. Same exact word that's used here for a scarlet robe. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So God, or, God is ordaining this symbolism of this robe all the way back in the Old Testament to not only have a meaning of authority and kingship, but also the taking of weight of sin on His shoulders. So what's taking place on the cross starts before we ever get to the cross. Through the symbolism of what they think they're doing to mock, God's using to show His people that this is your Messiah. This is your King. Most people still don't get it. And you're going to find out very quickly that you're going to see a return to the same imagery in Revelation chapter 19. When the rider of the white horse comes into the picture, I'm going to read you the whole passage. What's available to you on the screen is verses 13 and 16. But it says in verses 11 through 13, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flaming of fire and his head... Uh, upon his head are many diadem. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is the same kind of imagery, crimson, scarlet, same robe. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And then you skip into verse 16. It says, on his robe, that same crimson dipped robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. So when he wears that scarlet robe the next time, it's going to be different. It's not going to usher in a death that's going to pay for sins. It's going to usher in a reign that if you didn't take the payment that Jesus offered, you're fixing to get punished. Because he took the punishment to begin with, and now that that period is over, there's no more opportunity to take the punishment. You're going to have to take it yourself. And so we see this imagery from the Old Testament tying all the way into Revelation with the scarlet robe that Jesus takes upon His shoulders. The second one is the crown of thorns. A lot of people uh, have seen the crown of thorns that's weaving into this halo looking um, that goes kind of around the brow. But what ultimately really it would be, it would be like wearing an entire hat. It would almost be like an upside down bird's nest is the way I would look at it, made of thorns that were one to two inches thick. So he's not just wearing it around his brow, it's pushed down, shoved all the way on his head and he's wearing it the entire time that this takes place, all the way up the hill, one and two inch thorn sticking him in the head and them hitting him over the head with a reed. We're talking about some serious blood loss. You know anything about medically, this is the most sensitive area to lose blood. You prick your head, it takes forever to get it to stop bleeding. It's, it's one of the hardest things in the world to, to stop the bleeding. And you've got Jesus with this crown of thorns that is prushed, that, that's just pressed down on his head. But there's also imagery to this, and there's a purpose behind it. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see after the fall, 
that, that God the Father speaks and He tells man that cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. This is that same thorny brush substance that we're talking about on Jesus' head. It says it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. The thorns being symbolic of that very curse that was pronounced all the way back in Genesis. Then not only did he take the scarlet robe of your sins, but he's taken the thorns and the thistles that were pronounced at the very beginning. So it's not just a matter of, well, look what happened here. It's happening all throughout Scripture. And God is connecting dots. And you can also see a dot connecting. This is just kind of a side note in verse 19. It says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Before Jesus is crucified, right after He takes the Passover meal, He takes the third cup, drinks it, the cup of redemption, and then they don't take the final cup. He says He won't take that cup until He takes it with us in paradise. And they go out to the Mount of Olives and it says he prays three times for the, for the Father to take this cup from me. And he's talking about that cup. He's saying, I want this cup taken from me because I don't want to do it. And the Gospels are clear that he was in such stress and despair that he sweat drops of blood, which is medically possible. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. He says, I'm going to be that bread and the sweat of his brow that bled those drops for you and for me was proven once again. But it's not only there. You go to Genesis 22 and you see Abraham prepared to offer up Isaac on the altar. Craziest thing. Craziest story that you probably ever read. Any of us with kids, you can't even comprehend how this is possible that God would ask. But Abraham was faithful and said, I'll do what you've asked me to do. And so he takes Isaac up to the top of the hill and he's prepared to offer Isaac up on the altar. And as he is preparing to take his life, the angel stops him. And this is what happens in Genesis twenty-two thirteen. It said, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. It says, by the horns, by the head. You know what a thicket is? The very same thorny brush that's now on Jesus' head. So not only has He become the propitiation for sin from Genesis chapter 3, the first sacrifice is offered, we see the imagery of the final sacrifice being offered. Because the ram was caught with His head in the briars, and now Jesus has this crown of thorns. It's not just an accident that this takes place the way that it does. God's been weaving this together from the beginning of time. And when this sacrifice returns in Revelation 19, it says that His eyes are like flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, meaning the crown that He's going to wear is not going to any longer be a crown of thorns, but a crown of kingship over every single authority and ruler of this earth. And if we don't take we don't take truthfully what Jesus has done on the cross, what the symbolism of all this means, then when that crown is worn by him in eternity future and into eternity beyond, then we've missed it. We've missed it. And so we want to make sure that we do what's necessary now by accepting what Jesus has already done. The final thing that I want to show you this morning is the staff that they placed in his right hand. It says it was a reed that was handed to him. And um, we, we generally just, we think of this story and we think about the mocking that's taking place and they're just picking on him. They picked up the closest thing that they had. They had a reed, so we'll use a reed. But it's got more 
to it than that. And the Old Testament picture is different because the same symbolism is the same symbolism and the same word used in the Old Testament could be anything from a royal staff, a reed like this, or it could even be a shepherd's crook. Isn't that interesting? Because not only has he become the sacrifice, but he's called the good shepherd. And, and so you have the, the same imagery. It could also be a club, something that they would use to club animals, something they would use, usually it's not in a fight sense, but they would use to protect themselves with it. Isaiah 42.3 actually says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And it's actually quoted in Matthew chapter 12. And we see the soldiers place the reed in Jesus' hands when they're mocking Him. And in just a short amount of time, what's going to take place in Matthew 27, we talked a little bit about this with that final cup because uh, I, I've always been of the mindset that we're not going to drink the final cup. We took the Passover and uh, we shouldn't drink the fourth cup because we'll drink that with Him in paradise at the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus does drink the final cup. It's actually handed to him on the very same reed that he's being beaten with. It says they soak it a sponge in wine. And when they soak the sponge in wine, they hand it up to him because he had said, I thirst. And so they hand it to him on the reed, the exact same reed that they've been beating him with, the exact same reed that says that he's not going to bruise or break. And he re they reach up and point the reed at Jesus and he drinks and he says it's finished. He took the fourth cup. It was the final cup of the Passover. And when he said it was finished, he breathed his last and he, was, he, he had given up his spirit at that point. And we miss some of that because we, we don't connect the dots. And when we don't connect the dots, we also miss that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, it says to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood. And that is uh, in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with blood. So at the Passover... They were supposed to paint the doorpost. The kids painted the doorpost next door this morning. Not really. We put paper over the doorpost first. But they're painting the doorpost as a part of that. Um, just to see the symbolism. But the hyssop branch is also a reed. It's the same branch. And so the very blood that was painted on the doorpost that I told you a couple weeks ago, doorposts are not like ours. They actually would be exposed. So you would see the symbol of a cross at each doorpost. The doorposts would be painted that way so you see the blood across the cross. is handed up to Jesus on a blood-soaked cross. So there's even more symbolism than what you could imagine taking place. And then this lowly reed is going to change to an iron scepter. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, he says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. So take the lowly place right now while there's time to take it. Take the way of Jesus while there's time to take it because when we get to this point, if we're not willing to faithfully take what Jesus has offered us, it's not going to be offered anymore. He's given us all of this time to do what's, what is bound to us and what should be right in our spirit when we recognize who Jesus truly is. And for most of us, we miss it because... We've talked about this this morning. Miss Carolyn was talking a lot about uh, some of this. Psalm 23 is one of the most probably quoted psalms that you'll ever hear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, like I immediately hear Coolio saying that every time I hear it. If you don't know who Coolio is, you got to go back to the 90s to remember that. It's a rap song, if you're not familiar. Now you're going to want to go check that out. But he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, most of us stop right there and we get stuck in it. 
We stay in that because we just can't see anything in our circumstances that will ever point us to anything, anything else but a crown of thorns, a scarlet robe of mockery, and a staff or reed that ultimately was meant to punish Jesus. We, we can't see beyond that. And he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now this, this king that we're waiting for is already becoming a comfort. So when Jesus walks up the hill, they ultimately lay that crossbar on the beam. They raise him up seven feet in the air approximately, and he hangs there to take the sins of the world. And he's hung there between two thieves, and this is where I want us to really pay attention to ourselves today because I, I close with with this. Ultimately, here's the choice. The two thieves that are hanging on the cross, I, I love the imagery. God's Word is just incredible with imagery. In Luke 23, it's recorded that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's a conversation that takes place between the thief on his left and the thief on his right. And when that conversation takes place, it's very similar to a lot of conversations that people have with God by themselves today. And I want to I show you this. It says in uh, Luke 23, 35-43, it says, The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now here's where, here's where the conversation takes place. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There's not a lot of humility there. Not a lot of uh, recognizing our own position as a thief on the cross. Get me out of this. How many of us do that? <laughs> Get me out of this situation. If you're really God, you wouldn't let me go through this. It says of the other thief, it says the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it says that Jesus looked at him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now there's so much teaching that could take place about how we respond to people, because you got people that are scoffing at you every day for what you believe. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't even acknowledge that the guy said anything. Hanging on the cross. <laughs> he looks at the one that responded properly and he says, Truly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. And so here's the choice. You can choose mercy, be humble, choose the right way. And, and I want to show you what that means. I personally believe that there. There's a symbolism here, and don't take this politically because I've heard plenty of people in the church take this politically. But the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 says, A wise man, man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. I know, people think about that politically. Um, and it's not always the case. But when you see that, there's a clear image of Jesus being hung in between two thieves, and I personally believe that the thief on the right is the one that's asking Jesus for mercy, saying, remember me, in paradise. And the one on the left is the one that's scoffing and saying, if you can save us, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it the way I think you should do it? 
And, and it's not just in Ecclesiastes, it's throughout the Psalms. We see the reference to the right or the right hand, Psalm 110. The, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the days of His wrath. 121, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Psalm 17, uh, wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. So there's, And that's just a couple of places. But we also get to a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 25, verses 33 through 34. He says, He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there is an imagery that takes place that even Jesus spoke of in the Gospels. And there is already taking shape in our culture, in our society, a separation where people are either making the choice to stand on the right or stand on the left. And here's where the problem mostly in lies for us. Because when I say it comes down to a choice, the first thing that we've got to recognize is we're one of these thieves on the cross. You've got to stop holding yourself in such high esteem that you're worthy of what Jesus has done because we're not. And it's the thief on the left that says, well, save us. Because, yeah, I did wrong, but we're going to trample on grace. But the thief on the right says, have mercy on me. Please don't forget me when you enter your kingdom. There's a difference in response to that. And the choice is being made every single moment of every single day in me and you. Because we're choosing to either receive that mercy by recognizing who we are. We're recognizing that we're the thief on the cross. So many people have a problem with that because they don't want to recognize that they are who they are. We have to recognize at our core we are sinful people. And here's the problem. If we don't, it says the foolish heart is inclined back to the left. A foolish heart is all we have. Don't let your foolish heart direct you that way. Don't let the foolishness of our hearts direct us back to the left to think that you have no need for God. It's foolishness. God proves it over and over again that there is not a single step that we can take to correct the wrongs in this world apart from Him. There's no amount of social justice that's going to do anything if there's no spiritual justice tied to it. Everything social justice that's written in Scripture points back to God. If there's no foundational relationship, then social justice is meaningless. It doesn't do anybody any good to be set free in this world just to die a sinner. If we forget that, if, if we don't, we incline ourselves back to the wrong side of this equation. We've got to choose what's right. We've got to choose to recognize ourselves for who we truly are. Do not let your foolish heart direct you towards the left. God has given you and I everything that we need to choose faith in Christ. It's been given to us. It's been handed to us simply. I I just showed you very simply connecting dots that many of us take for granted, probably mostly because if we grew up in church, nobody took the time to do it. There's a whole sect of church out there that wants to just tear the New Testament out and forget the Old Testament. And it does us no good because if we don't have the combination of the two, you don't get why Jesus did what He did. You don't understand why God sent Jesus to do it. You don't see the system of oppression that took place, not by God's hand, but because men forsook God constantly. 
You don't see it. You just see grace. And what do we have? We have churches that just preach grace. And you just keep doing you. And you be who you want to be. And let your heart guide you. And my Bible says that if you're, if you're going to let your heart guide you, it's going to lead you straight to hell. Because you're not capable of receiving what Christ has without Him. You've got to have the power of that Spirit in you. And it starts with the pricking of the Holy Spirit to choose faith in Christ. We don't have anything in us that can do it. And we miss that. Because if we miss this, then here's the, la here's the last part of it. We have no reason to celebrate. You have a reason to celebrate. We have a reason to look at Palm Sunday today and know that what awaited Jesus was for our good and for ultimately God's glory. Because we can connect the, God, the dots that are there for us to connect. But we don't have a reason to celebrate if we never, ever, ever follow through by choosing faith in Jesus. By being willing to walk the path that He was willing to walk. So this morning, very simply, choose the position of the thief on the right. You've got to recognize yourself in that place first. Then you've got to choose the right. We are all thieves. Some just recognize it and receive the forgiveness that we need to stand. <laughs> and some don't. And my prayer is, is that as a church and as individuals who claim to be the church, when we walk out the doors from a Sunday morning service, it doesn't end for us there. We choose faith this afternoon. We choose faith tomorrow morning. We choose faith in the middle of our mess on Monday afternoon. We choose faith when the kids are screaming they're hungry tomorrow night. We choose faith in the midst of soccer practice and ball this and, and chasing this and doing this dance and we've got this job and we've got this. We choose faith because we have a reason to celebrate what's coming next Sunday. Because it didn't end at the cross, it continued and ultimately it ultimately doesn't stop. This kingdom is for an eternity. If we can just simply recognize and receive forgiveness that we drastically need. Church, there's coming a day when Christ is going to come back. My prayer and my belief is we won't be here, those of us that are truly redeemed. I believe that. Some people don't. I'm going to keep standing on it. And if, if I'm wrong, then I'll be alright with that. We'll just endure for three and a half years or seven or whatever it may be. I'm just going to say He's going to get me before that. But even if we don't, we have to continue to say, I'm going to stand on the promise and choose faith in Christ. Can we do that today? Let me pray for you, church. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Radiance in Macomb, Mississippi. If you have made a decision to follow Jesus, would like to connect with a pastor, or would like to support the ministry of Radiance, you can easily do so on our website at RadianceMacomb.com. We hope you have a blessed week.